0: Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter three. We're going to see just the last three verses in 1 Timothy three and then go into the first uh, four verses or five verses of chapter four. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy who was a young man who was pastoring at the church at Ephesus and uh, this this epistle has often been called a handbook for church life. It's always good to have a manual for something. Uh, This is the handbook or the manual for church life. Chapters one through three teach us how men and women are supposed to come to church. We come modestly, we come prayerfully. Uh, Those chapters teach us what God expects of Christian leaders. We just finished that last week. Chapters four through six build on the foundation of what a church should be, and they give us the practical instructions of what a church should do. In these last chapters, Paul will give warnings about false teachers, you give practical instructions about how to uh, how to treat the widows in the church, how to treat servants, how to treat those who are wealthy, and so there's something here for everyone. The Lord uh, the letters follow the pattern of many New Testament epistles where there's doctrinal truth in the first half and then some practical application in the second. And so we're right here in the middle of this epistle. And these these last 3 verses in chapter 3 actually form a bridge of, uh, of, of doctrinal truth to practical exhortation. Um, these three verses contain a hymn that were sung in the early church. It's a hymn that teaches that those truths of scripture, truths uh, particularly about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get into the first five verses of chapter four and that addresses false teachers. And you say, well, how does that connect? Well, any time that you take a stand for the truth, by its very nature, you're taking a stand against false teachers and false doctrines, and so that fits very well here. So the title of the message this morning, A Hymn of Doctrine and a Warning of Danger. Uh, at the center of the letter, we find the central theme. We've mentioned that before in verse 15. Well, in verse 14, Paul tells about his plans to come to Ephesus. It's a personal note that he's giving to Timothy these things write I unto you uh, unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But in verse 15, he gets into that theme of the whole epistle, the whole, whole book, uh, the purpose of his writing. Uh, "But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth." Now remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was unofficially the capital of the Asian province. It linked the trade of the east with the great city of Rome. The population in the first century was about 200,000 people. If you were to sail into the main port of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea, you would be impressed with the pillars that lined the 35 foot wide street that led into the center of the city. Uh, Those pillars, uh, some of them still standing today. Uh, The Temple of Diana of the Ephesians was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was built with 127 pillars. That was common in Roman architecture. One of those pillars was a gift of the king. Uh, It was overlaid with gold, decorated with precious gemstones. It's no longer there. Everyone knew that pillars and foundations were essential to strong buildings, for buildings that would last. Paul calls the church the pillar and the ground of the truth. He's not talking about the architectural appearance of a building. He's referring to the characteristics of stability and of attractiveness of Christ's work. The more our culture ignores and attacks the truth of the Bible, the more unstable our world will become. We have seen it just in the last 20 years. The consequences of rejecting God's standards, God's truth, God's God's standard of what is right and what is wrong, and truth became relative. And people began to promote their own ideas, their lies that replaced truth. How will it end? Or are studying in Sunday night, the book of Revelation, when the church is taken out of the world in the rapture, Satan will empower the Antichrist with signs and lying wonders. So what are we to do while we're here, before that rapture? Well, don't lose hope. The world desperately needs to know Christ. He is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. They should see him when they look at the church, which is still to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul's hymn of praise is found in verse 16. It's probably sung in the early church. It's written in the form of poetry. Stylistically, it lends itself to music. In Colossians 3.16, we're told to, to teach and admonish one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and that's exactly what this him does it teaches it teaches six important truths about Jesus Christ and without controversy great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit seen of angels preached unto the Gentiles believed on the world on in the world received up into glory the words without controversy are from the word that uh, we translate confession and you've heard it before confession means to say the same thing or to agree with God about something to agree on and so here without controversy in agreement people have a lot uh, different ideas about a lot of things but these doctrines in these verse about the person and work of Christ are non-negotiables we agree on these things. We might call the phrase, great is the mystery of godliness, the title of the hymn. We saw in 1 Timothy 3.9 that a mystery is something that was once concealed but now revealed. The mystery of godliness is Christ himself who is revealed, who is made known. So let's see what this hymn teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, God was manifest in the flesh. That's his incarnation. We all agree We lift our voices as we sing this hymn of this first doctrinal truth. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus is the revelation of the eternal God. In John 1, the gospel starts, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Down to verse 14 in that that same chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You remember when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be sufficed, we'll be, we'll be satisfied. And, and Jesus said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. The early church battled with false teachings. One especially was Gnosticism. The Gnostics taught that all physical substance is evil and they denied the reality of Jesus physical body because that's evil right they taught that his baptism uh, at at the baptism the Holy Spirit came down upon him that's when he became God and then at his crucifixion he he departed from him and, and that's what he died as as the human flesh well the writer of Hebrews makes his humanity very clear And he tells why it's necessary that Christ was indeed all man in human flesh, as well as all God. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That is, he became a human uh, flesh and blood. That, and that's a purpose clause, so that through death, he might destroy him that hath the power of the death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus had to take on human flesh in order to be the perfect sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice for us. We sing amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? He was God in the flesh. Second major doctrine in this early church hymn describes his sinless life. He was justified in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit examined his life and found that he was perfectly righteous. Why is that important? Well, again, if Jesus had sinned, he couldn't have been the perfect spotless lamb of God to die in my place. With no acceptable sacrifice, we would still be in our sins. We would still stand condemned before God but because he did not sin he could impute to us his righteousness 2nd Corinthians 521 for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that is Christ knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him his sinless life third his testimony to angels he was seen of angels God's messengers were watching as Jesus came into earth to fulfill this eternal plan of redemption. They watched it unfold. They were very interested in the salvation that God would provide for man. We see them involved throughout the earthly life of the ministry of Christ. A multitude of angels proclaimed his birth to the shepherds. Angels ministered to him in his temptation, or after his temptation in the wilderness. Angels rolled away the stone at the empty tomb. They were at the ascension to tell the disciples, he, the same Jesus is taking up, taken up into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Angels are created beings, and their destiny was settled when Satan, the, the head angel, rebelled against God, and a third of the angels followed him in that rebellion. Revelation 12:4, Jude, verse 6. In Jude 6 it says, and the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved, that is, it is settled, they cannot be changed, their destiny cannot be changed, reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. All these angels, both good angels, God's angels in heaven with him, and the angels that followed Satan, which we call demons, are interested in in what God is doing in the human race. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12 that the prophets wrote about the grace that would come through the sufferings of Christ and the glory of his resurrection. He said that the prophets wrote that for us, but the message of the gospel was something that the angels desire to look in. Demons are curious, because they're looking for ways to thwart the work of God when men are saved. They want that stopped. Good angels look into the work of God and give him glory, give him praise. Notice the fourth doctrinal truth here. He was preached unto the Gentiles. That's his testimony to all nations. The disciples were given the mandate, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye, literally the the verb tense there is having gone. Make disciples, preach the gospel teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Great Commission is still our responsibility. The end of the world, it says at the end, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The word there is "ion," It means age. We haven't come to that yet, but we will. And then it'll be too late for anyone to respond to the gospel of Christ. There should be an urgency in our hearts To share the gospel with others. Do you confess or agree with that doctrinal truth? That Christ is to be preached to the Gentiles. It's a truth that affects the way we live. Or do we sing, take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Close our hymnals, walk out of the church, and never talk to anyone about how they can be saved. The fifth truth, he was believed on in the world. Here's the conversion of sinners. When Peter preached that first message at Pentecost, 3,000 people responded in faith, were baptized, were saved. Since that time, there have been great multitudes of people who put their faith and trust in Christ. And yet there's room for more. The world today needs to hear what Paul said to the Philippian jailer Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Lastly, the hymn tells of his ascension and glorification. He was received up into glory. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, that God exalted Jesus and gave him a name which is above every name. We're told in Acts 2, 20, that he is now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. His work of redemption is done. It's finished. We confess that, we agree, we believe that, we serve a risen savior and a coming king. What a great doctrinal hymn. Can you unite your heart with every point of this this hymn? Is this the confession of faith that you agree with? Will you continue the task of taking his name to the world so that others can be saved? There was once an old church in England that had on the front of the building a sign that read, We Preach Christ Crucified. After some years, the ivy that was growing up the wall covered a portion of the words. It obscured the sign, and it just said, We Preach Christ. And the ivy grew, and until all you could read was, We Preach. Eventually, that was covered as well, forgotten. May we never cease to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Him crucified. That was the message of the early church. It must be the message that we have as well until Jesus comes. Now we move over to the next chapter in verses one through five and we find this warning about apostasy. There have always been those who have argued against the truths of Christianity. It's not new in our generation. And these five verses are perfect and logical progression, again, from the doctrine that we have just seen. Guthrie writes, there's a connection here with the hymn just quoted in that the false teaching will challenge its substance. It's good to know the doctrines of Christ so we can stand against the false teachings of our day. Here's a prediction of apostasy in verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. How do we know this prediction about apostasy is accurate? Is there really uh, going to be a departure from the faith? Are people going to desert the faith that they once believed? We know it will happen because it's a divine message. The Spirit speaketh expressly. This is the Holy Spirit. These are his words. What a reliable source. It's God's message. It's a distinct message expressly, that is, in a language with words that people can understand. So the Holy Spirit expresses the truth of a coming apostasy with words we can easily understand. It's going to happen. When will it happen? In the latter times. Now, the latter times included what was happening in the first century as Paul was writing to Timothy. The departure had already started taking place. Timothy was being told that it's here now and it's only going to get worse. The Bible has several passages that talk about it. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. John wrote in 1 John 2.18, Little children, it is the last time. As ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are are there many Antichrists whereby we know it is the last time. So they believed they were in the last time. They were seeing Antichristian attitudes in their day, first century. What is apostasy? Paul says, some shall depart from the faith. That word depart is an interesting word and a a very picturesque word. It means to to remove yourself from a place where you once stood. That's apostasy. Warren Wearsby calls it a willful turning away from the truth of the Christian faith. The new terminology that we're hearing nowadays is deconstruction. I'm deconstructing what I used to believe. Don't be surprised when people turn their backs on God and walk away. Paul warned that it would happen. It proves that they never really did have a genuine faith. We go to 1 John 2, 19 for that. They they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. How are men led astray? Timothy is warned in the latter times, people will give heed to, that is, they will, they will pay attention to these things that he'll talk about. They will follow, they will devote themselves to Satan's demons. The spirits, seducing spirits, the teaching, doctrines of demons. The word seducing, the word we get our word planet from, a planet is a wandering star. It doesn't follow the pattern of all the other stars, or yeah, the stars in heaven when you look at them. And so they were wandering, they were planing away, and that's why they're called planets. These fallen angels, who've done their homework about God offering salvation, remember they're interested, they look into those things, twist the truth, and persuade you, hey, it's just a little deviation it's okay, it's just a small step away from the path that God has told you to walk on. And it'll end up far from the path that God wants you to walk on, seducing spirits. The false teaching, the doctrines of demons, they come up with their own new teaching, either blatant lies that deny God's word, or more subtly, by offering ideas that keep people from the truth. There are many. I like C.S. Lewis's uh, book, Screwtape Letters. It's an interesting narrative about how demons work to deceive men. So how do the demons get people to listen to lies? Notice the text says, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Now Guthrie writes, the language indicates that these demons use agents to do their speaking. They, They look for human teachers to spread their lies. The Bible says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so they're they're looking for men to spread these rumors of of what is truth and what is not. Sound familiar? (laughs) How do these demons persuade men to spread deliberate lies? It says, by searing the conscience with a hot iron. When you burn or sear or scar nerve endings, they no longer send messages to the brain. And your hand that's not picking up those messages can uh, touch a flame, be cut, and you don't sense that, and it only leads to more damage. The nerves can't send the, the warnings anymore. Just so your conscience, your ability to determine what's right and what's wrong can be seared, can become desensitized. 25 years ago, Josh McDowell and Bob Hostetler wrote a book called The New Tolerance. And they were pointing out the change that's taken place in our society, and our culture, from saying, toleration, everyone has the right to believe whatever they want to believe. And we've said that. The new tolerance says, everyone is right in what they believe. And that can't be true. That was 25 years ago. Today we're seeing the repercussions of that new tolerance. Consciences have been seared. What's the answer? Well, we know the answer for sin is confession of sin. Agreeing with what God says about my sin. And how do we do that? We have to know what God says. And how do we know that? We have to go to God's word. This book is so crucial in our time and in our lives. Let's invest our time in it. Let's spend time with God. Let's understand his will. And we'll never agree with God unless we hear what he has to say. So let's stay in the book. Restore the sensitivity of your conscience by reading, by obeying God's standard of right and wrong. Well, what are some of the lies that, have been persuaded, that people have been persuaded to believe? There were two here that were being promoted in Ephesus. Don't get married, don't eat meat. Okay. Both have been major tenets of those who preach that you can be saved by works. That is either by doing something on a list or by refraining from doing something on a list. These rules were part of, the, again, the Gnostic heresy. The spirit of a person is good. It's virtuous, the physical body is evil, and so I've got to subdue all my appetites of the physical to gain God's favor. And one of those would be saying no to marriage. There are certain religious groups that say that their leaders or members should take vows of celibacy. To that, God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. God was the one who ordained marriage, and if you read the pattern, it's very clear one man, one woman, together for life. Well, you say, what about being single? Paul covers that in the New Testament. He said in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them to, if they abide even as I. So we can say it's good to be married. We can say it's also good to be single. Be content with God's will and where he's placed you right now in your life. Be content. The problem comes when you teach people that remaining single earns you God's favor or God's grace. Remember what grace is, unmerited favor. The other thing was no meats. False teachers in Ephesus were making the restrictions of not eating certain things as a matter of religion. If it's something that is good for your diet, that's fine. But don't tell people they're going to earn God's favor by removing some things from their diet. The church in Colossae was battling the same heresy. Paul had written to them just a few years earlier, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not. And he goes on to say, They're following the commandments and doctrines of men, not of God. And neglecting the body, he calls a show of wisdom in will worship and humility. He's saying an outward show of self-made worship and false humility. What's Paul's argument against abstaining from eating meat? That God created... And and there to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth, verse 4, for every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Real quickly, Paul was saying, no, everything is to be received with thanksgiving. You're not more spiritual if you stop eating meat. God created animals to be partaken of, received. He made everything good. That was the comment that God made in the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis seven times. It's good. These are things not to be refused. Instead, they're to be received with thanksgiving. That is, in verse five, it says eat, or it, which is the meat, it is sanctified by the word and prayer. It's probably our mealtime prayer. The Christian life is not to be lived in the negative. Oh, you Christians, you can't do this, you can't do that, you'll never have any fun in life. It's not to be lived in the negative, it's in the positive. These false teachers and the ones today were commanding to abstain from meats. They were forbidding them to marry. Did you notice those words in the text? Commanding, forbidding. There are many lists that people hold up today as a way to live in order to please God. Salvation is never earned by keeping commandments. The Old Testament proved we can't do that. Salvation comes by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan and his demons are constantly attacking biblical truth by leading men away from that truth through seducing lies. Don't get caught up into thinking that you can earn God's favor and merit salvation. That's the biggest lie. If you're not sure of your salvation, stop listening to all the things that people are telling you and come to the word of God. By grace are you saved through faith. Come to Christ today. Call upon his name and you can be saved. Believer, don't fall away from the doctrines of God's word. Stay in it. Continue by faith to believe everything that God has written for you. And as we face the false teaching of our day, let's stand fast in the faith. Let's continue telling others about the salvation that is found only through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. And I pray that as we come to it and are are impacted with its truths, that we won't walk away the same. That we'll, we'll let it change us to be more like our Savior. And I pray that you'll use us even this week. If there's one here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that they'll come today and and have that assurance that their sins are forgiven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.